0: Well, it is always with some genuine fear and trembling, as well as some deep abiding joy, that I bring to you this study in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Today we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 through 22, and I've entitled this study, The Divine Yes in Christ. The Divine Yes in Christ. Let me begin, before we read our text, to just remind you that at the core of this letter is Paul's concern for unity between himself and the church at Corinth in Christ. Paul and his associates have preached the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as ministers of a new covenant of the Spirit, and this church in Corinth was formed as a result but these new converts remained within a Greek society defined by a philosophical narrative of mystery religions grounded in human wisdom. What's more, certain men have also entered the church and asserted themselves as the true apostles with an alternative gospel narrative to that of Paul and have called into question Paul's credentials and his gospel. So there's a lot of moving parts here. There's a lot of interpersonal relationship things going on. There's a lot of theology, gospel challenges going on. And so we are all part of that. We are all participating with Paul, with these other players, the Corinthian believers, the the voices of criticism within the church, as well as the influence of these false apostles. So Paul is writing to address this, as Fee and Stewart call it in their book, an overriding relational tension. An overriding relational tension that one senses between Paul and the Corinthians regarding true apostleship. Now, I'm going to repeat that because it's so very essential. According to Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, Paul is writing to address an overriding relational tension between Paul and the Corinthians regarding true apostleship. Now, this is certainly applicable to you and I today. Because we too feel the tension in our day as to what it is to be a true minister of the gospel. What is true ministry and what is not true ministry? How are we to discern and know who is true and who is not? Furthermore, what is Christian character? And how do we begin to integrate that into our minds and hearts? Now, these may not be questions that bother you hourly or daily or perhaps at all, but they ought to. It's very important to you, to your mental, relational, and spiritual health, to be able to speak with confidence as to what a true ministry is and what it is not. How to discern who is true and who is not. How to know whether you are actually possessing a, a Christian character. And if you're not, how do you go about doing that? How do you go about integrating Christ's character into your own mind and heart? So in today's lesson, we're going to discover that Christian character is determined not by human wisdom, Not by worldly standards, but by the gospel narrative and paradigm of the new covenant and the gift of the Spirit. It is the storyline out from which we are living that determines our character. Very important principle. And every person that's ever lived, every person that's living today, and every person who will ever live will be Spending their life living out a narrative. Everyone has a paradigm for life. Everyone has a world view. Everyone has a um, narrative, a story that they're living out, and it informs who they are. It informs those around them as to who they are. And it informs and even forms their character. So I, I beg you to pay close attention and focus because what is at stake here is this. Whether or not the image of Christ will be revealed in you and through you and into the world. That's what's at stake. That's you can understand better perhaps now why I say I always approach this study with a great deal of fear and trembling, and yet with a great deal of settled joy as well, because I know the answer. I understand both the the nature and character of where we're going here and, and the promise of it. But at the same time, I understand how important it is to be clear and to be simple, yet thorough in presenting this content to you. Well, let's start by reading our text of course 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 15 through 22 i'm reading from the NIV and it begins like this quote because i was confident of this i wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice i wanted to visit you on my way to macedonia and to come back to you from macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes us both, you and I, makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. End quote. Well, may the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy and fully inspired and inerrant word. Amen. Well, let's unpack our text. It is because Paul is confident that his readers stand in unity with him, or that they soon will, that he planned to visit the church two times. On his way to Macedonia, and on his way back again. He wanted them to have a second benefit of his presence and his ministry. But hearing of the continuing conflict, he changed his plans and determined another visit would be painful for both he and the church. And so he wrote a letter instead. Apparently, there had been this relationship rupture, and repair was still needed. And there remained certain voices within the church at Corinth which were critical of Paul. And while they were likely in the minority by now, they were aligned with those who represented themselves as alternative apostles to Paul. So we get an idea, don't we? It's rather kind of a mundane thing to consider, but there is this relational dynamic that's going on between Paul and the church. Including Paul in the church and these uh, false apostles, so when Paul made changes in his itinerary, these men jumped at the chance to paint Paul as untrustworthy. This is the backdrop now, stay with me. This is the backdrop. The question is is: can Paul's character be trusted that's That's what the false apostles were saying That's what his opponents at Corinth. We're saying, once they heard that he was not coming, even though they were planning on his visit, he had changed his mind, changed his itinerary, and so now the question arises, well then, can this man even be trusted? We can't trust him to keep an itinerary. How can we trust him with the gospel? So let's look at what Paul says regarding the nature and the source of his integrity as a ministry minister of the gospel. What what is it that forms Paul's character? What is it that they can trust, even if he does change his plans? What what is it about him and about themselves that they can boast of? So we have learned that it is integral to the gospel integral to the gospel, that it produces character in accord with the preached message, particularly the message of the cross. What we preach is confirmed by how we conduct ourselves. It does no good to preach Christ if we're not Christ-like in our character. In fact, it does far more damage than if we said nothing at all. And how we conduct ourselves is in accord, then, with the life of Christ in us. So, when Paul changed his travel plans, his opponents at Corinth tried to use that change to call into question whether or not Paul anything Paul said or did could be trusted. Now, anyone who has served in pastoral ministry has felt the sting of petty criticisms. And that's what this was. This was a petty criticism. This was a political move by Paul's opponents to try to cast doubt upon his character, but as importantly, upon his gospel. Paul confronts, therefore, the charge that he was fickle or he made plans in a worldly manner. But not by defending his own personal character, per se, his own innate character, or his credentials, but Paul appeals to the faithfulness of God as the source and cause of his own character. Paul appeals to the faithfulness of God as the source and the ground and cause of his character. He says in verse 18 But surely, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes. And no, so how is it that God's faithfulness translates into the formation of Paul's character? This brings me to my first point. It is the faithfulness of God that determines Christian character. Paul tells his readers that God's faithfulness is revealed in that the Son of God Jesus Christ is not a message of yes and no, but in him it has always been yes, the divine yes in Christ. What's he mean by this? When he speaks of yes and no or the divine yes in Christ, what is he speaking of here? Well, the first thing we should note and take a highlight or two is the fact that Paul and his associates preached a person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Paul and the other apostles were not going throughout the world at this time fulfilling the Great Commission by preaching a new philosophy, a new doctrine. Necessarily, Not even, certainly, a new system of theology. They weren't preaching a spiritual path. They weren't preaching a new form of wisdom. They certainly were not preaching a mystery religion, or a new form of um, law-keeping, a new pathway through the Mosaic law. No, they were preaching a person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that preaching has a context. The apostolic preaching to which you and I are the heirs, and I would dare say the stewards, the stewards of, is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's the context of the person and work of Jesus Christ that we need to address today. So Christ is the center of our preaching. We preach Christ. In his first letter to the Corinthians, we discover Paul preaching, uh, Paul's preaching was the message of the cross. What she said in 1 Corinthians 1.18 was foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So that's the message, and that's the effect. The message of the cross, the message of Christ's finished work on behalf of dead and powerless sinners, in order to create a, a new people, the new people of God under a new covenant, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So they So we preach Christ, and that preaching has two very different effects. And that's part of what's weighty for me or for anyone else who takes it upon themselves to communicate the apostolic message of the gospel, the apostolic message of the cross, knowing that there will be two responses. There are those who will hear and be saved, and there are those who will... Here and reject it and perish. And that's not to say I am responsible for the outcome, but I am responsible for the content. I'm not even responsible for the style. I just have what I have. I I can't be anyone else but me. But myself or anyone else who takes it upon themselves to preach the gospel, to be a steward of the gospel the steward and be the, and preach the same gospel that Paul and his associates and the other apostles of that day preached the other of Christ's apostles the true apostles preached have that responsibility to steward that message to steward that content in First Corinthians again his first letter we have our first cano- canonical canonical letter. He says this, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What does that mean except he could have known a lot of other things? Could have taken a lot of, a lot of other debates upon himself, a lot of other questions, a lot of other theories, a lot of other uh, speculations. But he didn't. He said, I, I didn't want to know anything while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I had a counseling client come one, to me one time and say, "What, what, what is it? What's the paradigm for your counseling work? And I told her it was Galatians uh, 4.19, until Christ is formed in you. That I hoped to be a facilitator of that miracle. That this person would go from the struggles and suffering that she was in to a person who walked and talked and acted as though some as though Christ was formed in them. And that's the same thing for Paul. He didn't want to know anything among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says he goes on in that same verse in 1 Corinthians. He says I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message was not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. That's chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, verses 2 through 5. So in our day of charismatic celebrity preachers who wow their audiences, with their keen insights and skilled exposition, what we need is a renewal of this Pauline preaching ethic. What you need, more importantly, is a renewal of this Pauline preaching ethic. It is Christ that Paul preached. Not dogma. Not systematic theology. Not even justification. He preached Christ. He didn't preach helpful skills for successful living. He didn't take his place amongst the philosophers and offer Christianity as a a new and profound philosophy. He preached a person and that finished work of that person. And Paul preached from personal weakness, and he made no attempt to hide his weaknesses behind wise and persuasive words, but his preaching was instead a demonstration of the Spirit's power, not his own skill and resources. Now, stay with me, because I'm, I'm building this for a reason. I'm helping you get an idea as to what's coming here. Paul was not operating on a fleshly basis or with reliance upon worldly wisdom. Listen, the only alternative we have to the Gospel is fleshly wisdom worldly wisdom, and it does nothing for you. It will not stem the destructive nature of sin in your flesh. You may look good for a season, you may even sound good for a season, and things may even be good for a season, but it'll be a short-lived season. Apart from the gospel of the new covenant of the Spirit, you will eventually revert back to your enslavement to sin. So Paul was not preaching from worldly wisdom. He was not relying upon worldly wisdom, but upon the power of the Spirit of God. And this is why. This is a central point here. Paul's ministry and his personal character, both his preaching and his personal character was determined by the covenantal and eschatological character of the gospel. And it is the covenantal and eschatological framework of the gospel that serves as the paradigm through which Paul and his associates preached, and please hear me now, also formed their personal character as Christians. Now, some of you have already begun to push yourselves away from the table. <laughs> some, some of you have already maybe rolled your eyes and said, oh boy, you know, this is too much for me. This is a, this is a seminary lecture or something. Don't, don't give in to that, folks. <laughs> I mean, preachers around the world today spend all their time trying to dumb you down trying to tr- treat you and condescend to you as if you can't even understand the truth of the gospel. So they feed you pablum. They feed you little crumbs from the table and say, that's all you need. That's, it's, all, it's all good. You know, you're, you're got it. And then they wonder why people in their churches don't grow, don't mature. So please, let me beg you, don't let words like covenantal, and eschatological intimidate you. I'll explain what I mean by that. It's not hard to understand. If you can understand anything of the gospel, you can understand its framework. You have to. You remember back earlier in uh, chapter 1, when Paul said this, he said, "...for we do not write you anything that you cannot read or understand." That was chapter 1, verse 13. In verse 14, he says, As you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully. So Paul understood that the Corinthians understood the gospel in part, but hear me now, they were in trouble. They were in relational trouble with Paul and they were confused by the false apostles because they had not yet fully understood what they now understood only in part. And I want to spare you, my hearers, from that as well. So please, don't let these words covenantal and eschatological intimidate you. They're just words, and they will make sense to you. But these words are essential for you to move from a partial understanding of the gospel by which you were saved, into a full understanding of the gospel by which you are transformed into Christ-likeness. So I will explain simply and clearly what is meant by Covenantal and Eschatological now in my next point. Point 2. All of God's promises to Israel are fulfilled in Christ. Let me say that again. All of God's promises to Israel were and are and remain fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says, as God is faithful, but as surely as God is faithful, he says in verse 18, I'll keep my glasses on here. <laughs> but as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes, and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. Yes that's what Paul means. And then in verse 20 he says for no matter how many promises God has made who who had made who were the subject of those promises to whom had God made these promises not necessarily to the Corinthians they were gentiles under the law and the prophets God had made promises through the prophets, to Israel. And now he's saying, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Under the gospel now, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are included. That's the mystery that's been revealed, is that the Gentiles are now included in the promises of God made to Israel. And those promises are yes in Christ, meaning simply that they have been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of God's self-revelation and the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Now, that may be of trouble to some of you who have heard differently, but stay with me. I'll get to that in a minute. It is in Christ that God has fulfilled all His promises within the Law and the Prophets." This is why Paul and his associates preached Christ and Him crucified. They didn't preach the rapture. They didn't preach dispensationalism. They didn't preach covenantalism. They didn't preach some kind of law-keeping. He preached Christ and Him crucified, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, In Jesus, all that God has promised has been fulfilled. Now, this is the testimony throughout the New Testament. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, we read that God has spoken in His Son. God, in times past, has spoken through the prophets, but now, in these last days, He has spoken in His Son says the writer to the Hebrews. He does not say, God is still speaking. No, what God had to say, he said in his Son. And God is no longer speaking, he's no longer promising, because there's no more to be said. God has spoken, and all the promises of God are yes in Christ, meaning simply All of God's promises are fulfilled in his Son. Though they have yet to be fully realized, they are nonetheless fulfilled in him. In the resurrected and ascended and glorified Christ, we have all the promises of God to Abraham, Moses, David, fulfilled. Now, some will tell you God's promises to Israel are still pending, and they will do this to draw your attention away from Jesus and back toward national Israel, just like they did in the first century. So this is not new. This is precisely what the false apostles were saying in Paul's day as well. And this false message continues within evangelicalism today as well, especially with the war that's going on now in Israel and Palestine. Israel's in the news every day. And there are those with a false gospel, write that down, underline it, circle it, with a false gospel who would draw your attention away from Jesus and get you focused back on national Israel and it's a distraction that you can't afford. And this is another reason why this study at this time is so very important to you. American evangelicalism is defined by two forms of systematic theology, each of which, now hear me now, redefine, alter, or dismiss altogether the new covenant of the Spirit that Paul preached and is preaching and and continues to preach throughout the New Testament, just like the false apostles of his own day. These people today still seek to redefine, alter, or dismiss altogether the new covenant of the Spirit. And you must, just like the Corinthians, Paul appeals to them and he's appealing to you and I today as well. We must discern and be prepared to renounce any teaching, any system that in the final analysis redefines, alters, or dismisses altogether the person of Jesus Christ and his finished work in the New Covenant. Listen, it's as simple as this, you cannot separate Christ and the New Covenant, which he consecrated in his own blood. And both popular dispensationalism and popular Reformed Covenant theology do that. You can know whether a system of theology is is, is um, biblical and thus true by how it treats the New Covenant. Because the New Covenant is the context through which we preach Christ and him crucified. Okay, I hope you're still with me. <laughs> so God has spoken in his Son, and all of God's promises to Israel fulfilled in Jesus and his finished work on our behalf. The only question is whether you have heard and understood what God said in his Son. If we're waiting for further revelation, or if we think somehow God's promises to Israel have yet to be fulfilled, as many think today, then they have not heard what god said in his son and that's dangerous very dangerous in fact in that letter same letter to the hebrews you turn there real quick he tells us in chapter 2 that we must pay the most careful attention therefore and that's what i'm pleading with you today pay most careful attention therefore to what we have heard what is it that we've heard that God is not speaking in his son God is not just part of God's plan for the world or redemption God God has spoken in his son It is a done deal So let's be clear With his coming and his finished work Jesus inaugurated, important word, inaugurated the kingdom of God, consecrated the new covenant in his own blood. Remember, the night before he suffered with his disciples. This is the cup of the the new covenant in my blood. Take it. Receive it. So Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God, consecrated the new covenant in his blood at the cross, and then that covenant was affirmed by the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. And that brought the future, everything that Israel had looked to for the future restoration of Israel, suddenly into the present at Pentecost. That's why Peter stood up and said this is that which was spoken of in the J- prophet Joel. Peter stood up under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit and said this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Everything that we were looking forward to in the in the last days that final day at the end of human history has occurred and is occurring in this moment. Peter was saying In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those those days, and they will prophesy. Those days, beloved, are now, and they have been since the day of Pentecost. Therefore, Paul writes in our text, and so through him, that is through Christ, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Listen, he, what he means there in our text is that we don't say the amen to something that's not finished. Can you imagine your pastor or somebody offering a prayer at the end of the service or sometime some time in the service and, and halfway through the prayer, somebody jumps up and says, amen. You might have to stop. And say, "Well, no, we weren't quite finished yet. No, we we've got another uh, length of our prayer here. Sit down. Wait, wait. Don't give the amen until we're done." But Paul saying, "And so, through him, through Christ, the amen is spoken. God has spoken. The amen is all we can say." All we can say to this marvelous reality of what God has done in his Son within the context of the new covenant and the outpouring of the Spirit and the invasion of the future into the present is amen. We we can't make anything more happen because there's nothing more to be made to happen. So we say the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God alone. Listen, your salvation is an accomplished fact. And just because it is yet to be fully realized does not mean it is any less certain. In Jesus Christ, God has accomplished the salvation of his people. It is the divine yes. It is done as evidence, listen now, by the restoration of his presence to the uh, to the people. This restoration of God's presence was the eschatological promise for which Israel had awaited. Since the days of Ezekiel, when God's presence had left the temple, the people were waiting for the restoration of God's presence to dwell among his people again. And at Pentecost, that restoration occurred. Now, there is no tabernacle. There is no physical temple in Jerusalem, nor will there ever be again. Jesus Christ is the temple, and his body is the dwelling place of God, at which body you are, beloved. The gift of the Spirit poured out at Pentecost is the eschatological gift that Israel was waiting for in the future, invading the present in the now, so that it's now. This is the paradigm, then, out from which Paul and his associates lived and ministered, and so must you and I, for it is the paradigm And this paradigm alone that facilitates God's work in producing an ever increasing conformity to Christ in you and in the church. It's that last statement there that makes me fear and tremble due to its weighty nature. What statement? That God has spoken. He's brought the future promise, both covenantally in the New Covenant, where the promise made to Abraham, the promise made to Moses, Moses and through the Mosaic Covenant, and the promise made into um, David, the Davidic Covenant are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's nothing left yet to be fulfilled. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He is true Israel. Everything that God intended for Israel has been fulfilled in the resurrected, ascended, and glorified Christ. And we now who have been included in him and are union with him by faith, according to grace, are sealed for what is yet to come. Week after week, I sit with people in my counseling office, all of whom are living out a narrative of one sort or another. The problem is is that their narrative brought them into my office because it's causing them mental, spiritual, and physical suffering. They are living out a story they were given, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1.18, he says, An empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Everyone who comes to my office, stumbles into my office, and, and they're hurting terribly, are suffering. Are suffering from the fact that they are living out a narrative that is destroying them. And what Paul is contending for in his letters is the truth that's found only within the gospel narrative, whereby believers are redeemed from such ways of life and transformed into new creations in Christ. They move from death to life, and life abundant, for it is the very life of Christ within them. So, we're running out of time, but I'm going just, just a little bit further here, and we'll probably do a part two of this. So that you can process it, integrate it, (laughs) and not feel overwhelmed. So let me just reiterate before I close. Let's look closer at these promises that Paul tells us are yes in Christ. The divine yes in Christ. All the biblical covenants of God, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants, have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the new covenant he consecrated in his own blood. The new covenant represents the pinnacle and the fulfillment of all previous covenants. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean about the promises of a new covenant found in a, in a transformed people found in Jeremiah 31 31 through 33, found in Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. They're all. Fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Though they have yet to be fully realized. Important note. So Jesus Christ himself indeed is the new covenant God made with his people. You can read that in Isaiah 42, 1-6. through 6. And That translates into the New Testament age in Luke 2.32. Acts 13.47 that, those promises made to the suffering servant and Isaiah are brought forward into the gospel, of course. Now, please make you note know of this. This is the covenantal structure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all we mean when we say covenantal. There are those who speculate and fabricate a so-called covenant of redemption, and then a covenant of works, and a covenant of grace. Everything and everything looks like a covenant to some theologians. But what they do when they do that is they redefine and minimize the new covenant of Christ into merely an administration of their overarching covenant of grace. But I warn you, even with tears at times, I warn you, do not embrace such teaching. Listen, no one has a right to alter, or redefine, or altogether dismiss the new covenant which Christ consecrated in his own blood. Yet the evangelical world is replete with those who do so, and their end will be according to their deeds, lest they repent. So the covenantal framework Paul defines here is the apostolic message. And the Corinthians, and we with them, must not fall prey to another false framework. Now, next time we're together, the rest of our text will introduce Paul's to the New Covenant eschatological framework. So I hope you come back. I hope you stay with me. We'll come back for part two of the Divine Yes in Christ. In that next study, I'll review some of what we talked about today so we can maintain our context. But the, I, what I want you to hear today is that God has called you into union with His Son. And that union is, is made possible because of His finished work by which you are, by grace, through faith, And a sovereign work of God. Through the gospel. United with his son. And it's only. Only through the gospel. Of the new covenant of the spirit. In the narrative therein. That you will be transformed. Into the image of his son. Christian character comes to us through a narrative. The narrative of the new covenant of the Spirit. And we'll talk more about that next time we're together. May the Lord strengthen you, keep you in His grace, until we meet again. Amen.